All right, so here we are. Okay, Romans chapter 7, and um, I had several questions at the end of, of my lesson last week, or actually a couple people even since then, uh, so I'm just going to quickly kind of go back over the opening two paragraphs of chapter 7, where Paul talks about uh, the issue of marriage, and then it comes back to the law. And so we'll uh, be taking a look at that. So here we are in the book of Romans. Uh, we've reached chapter 7, um, heading on to chapter 8, yeah, which comes comes next. That's You guys are really on top of things. So, um, and again, Paul's going to return to a familiar issue, which is the law which seems to indicate that there was quite a bit of problem with uh, the Jewish believers in Rome and that it must have been a real stronghold for some of the people to come past this understanding that Jesus as the Messiah has set them free from the law and not just set them free from the law but accepting everybody else without them going through the law. And that was a big issue for the Jewish people. We know that, and we've read the passage before in Acts chapter 15, where they gathered together uh, to discuss whether Gentiles could be added to the church. And um, there were some that said, with, unless you come through the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And I uh, think, well, that was kind of over with after the end of that conference with James kind of settled the the situation, but it wasn't because a number of years later when Paul goes back to Jerusalem and where he is finally arrested, it's still a point of contention. And so uh, ultimately uh, Paul is even arrested because uh, they say, well, if you're really going to show us that you're part of of this and that you, you really do uh, believe, you know, in all the things that God has said, um, then show the Jews how good of a person you are, and we've got four guys that need to make a vow, and so you pay their sacrifices, and you go in and, uh, and offer the sacrifice with them, and uh, then we'll accept you. And the hard thing for me is that Paul did that, and that just, you know, just really... How could he's already said, you know, if if you believe that any part of the law is required of you, then you're subject to the entire law. So but Paul did that. And that's what placed him in front of this priest uh, who rebuked Paul and Paul then slapped him. And so that didn't go well. Well, no, Paul called him a name, and then the other guy slapped Paul, so that's the way it worked. But anyway, it was still an issue. Um, so here, as Paul is writing to the church in Rome, uh, whether they are Jews who've been in Rome a long time, and they've heard the gospel through other people who have come to the city of Rome, or they've been Jews from other parts of the empire who have come to Rome, um, whether they were uh, proselytes who came from other parts of the empire and heard the message of uh, salvation through Jesus as Messiah. Whatever it was, they still have this, it's like claws of the, the law just sticking to them. Do you ever get those little, when I do my hiking sometimes, these little things called goat heads? I mean, I tell you, those things, they will stick to you. And if they can't stick to your clothes, they'll stick to your skin. You know, and they're just, and no matter how much you try to rub them off, they just don't rub off and they hurt. And uh, so anyway, that's kind of like, it's like, mm, I'm going to hold on. You are not going to get me out of this. So again, so this is, seems to be an ongoing issue for Paul uh, with these people. So he's going to come back to this, but he's going to hit it two ways here. But then he's going to spend the rest of chapter 7 really just talking about the law. And so that's where we'll head next week. But this week our lesson is called The Struggle, Identifying 
the opponents. Chapter 7, the whole thing is really a, a struggle. One commentary, uh, they called it the Holy War. And so this, this war that is going on, and we're going to talk about who those uh, characters are <laughs> that are participating in this struggle and uh, how those things will fit into Paul's teaching as he goes through. Um, many of them will occur in the book of Romans. Some of them will not, but we will take each one of these up. But we're going to start back with the opening couple of verses here where Paul talks about the issue of the woman and her husband. Now, he's talked about the law, and then he talked about slaves, now he's going to talk about marriage, and then he's going to come back to the law. So, Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, Or do you know, brothers? Do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she would be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So Paul is throwing this analogy out there, and it's important that we get the analogy right. And there are about four different ways that different commentaries have picked up on this. The only way that I can see it is the one that I present here. And so that is that the, the husband is not the law, because the law didn't die. And yet there's a lot of people that say, well, the husband was the law, the law died, and therefore she's free. No, that's, that's not what happened. The law didn't die. In fact, the law killed you because you identified with Christ and the law killed Christ. So, yeah. So it's not the law that died. It's who died? You. Okay, just say you. <laughs> you died because that's you. You were dead in Adam. Then you died in Christ through faith. When you believed in Jesus Christ, you died, and now you're dead. So there you are. So it's all celebration of marriage, of, of deadness, not marriage. Um, it's a celebration of deadness. But this issue with the marriage is just he's wanting to make one point. He's not saying, hey, I want you to reinterpret this whole thing with marriage in light of Jesus going to the cross and death and resurrection and you and all that. No, there's one simple point in all of this, and it really starts at the very first statement. If a man, uh, the law is binding, uh, in verse 1, that the law is binding only on a person as long as he lives. All right, so then it says, the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. That's basically the point. So it's not the question of who died, what happened. This is not a picture of the whole death in Christ and resurrection and who you are. No, it's not. It's a simple one statement. When you believed in Jesus Christ you died. But what part of you died? The old man, right? The old, what? The old man. Now, when I was growing up, back in the 70s, 80s, the phrase old man referred to our fathers. So we would use that. That's not a it's not a good phrase to use for today, but we talked about the old man. How's your old man? So they would ask that. So the old man died. I can't, can't say it any better because that's the issue. It's not you that died, and it's not the law that died. It's the old man that died. And that old man is the old self. That, that 
Adamic connection that you had. That you were descended from Adam, therefore that the separation from God was passed down to you. You were born dead. You were dead. Then when you believed in Jesus Christ, you died. And now you're dead. So, but you're alive. What part of you is dead? That, that what? That old man, that old self. That thing that was under the power of that is gone. Meaning what? If the old man is dead, then you're what? Free. Analogy of the marriage. If the old man is dead, the wife is free free to marry another. Which is who? Christ. Right? So that's the analogy. And he's not trying to make a whole number of spiritual points out of this. And so sometimes people just get so intense on trying to illustrate this that they miss the simple illustration. And the simple illustration is someone died and now someone else is free. Who died? The old nature, the old man. That's dead. And therefore, you're free from that old nature, and you're free to join to another, which is what happened in the miracle of your death and resurrection. You died in Adam. You died in Christ. And as soon as you died in Christ, you were now made alive in Christ. You, in a sense, what? Married another. And so now you have a new, quote, husband. Because you're not under the old husband any longer. So I put a number of, of little points down there. The wife is the, the inmost self or personality. Is you. The wife is you. Right? You in all of what you are. You in your wholeness. You in your person. And it's the same under all conditions of existence. It's I myself. We're going we're gonna to talk about I, myself, you, me, all these things that Paul talks about, that there's, there's a part of you that is not the spirit, and it's not the old nature. It's you. You walk in the spirit. So there's a, there's a you involved, and we'll talk about those things as we go. Point number two, the first husband is our old man, not our fathers, our old man, our unregenerate self. And as long as he was alive, we were under his power, under his authority. But what? He died. He died in Christ. So you believed in Jesus Christ and the old nature died. Point number three, the death of the first husband is the crucifixion of the old man through our identity with Christ by an act of faith. All you did is you believed. Paul said, my old man is dead. The old nature. The wife now set free, that is you, your person, is now free through your, uh, set free through the death of of the husband, To marry another. And that is that you can join yourself to Christ. And so this is the simple illustration that Paul is using in this this passage. Now, he's going to move on in verse 4. And he's going to come back and say it another way. But it's almost like he's reversing what he just said. But he's not. He's just now he's making another spiritual application. That was an illustration. The husband's dead, the wife is free. That's the simple illustration. Now, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the power, control, dominion, mastery of the law through union with his death in the body of Christ. You died to the old nature when you believed in Jesus Christ. How? In the body of Christ. So that you may belong to another, 
that is, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. We could not bear fruit for God as long as we were bound to the old nature. We could only bear fruit for the old nature, which is what it says in the next verse, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, that is before our birth, our new birth, our faith and conversion, our redemption, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So we couldn't bear fruit for God as long as we were in Adam. We had to get out of Adam. But you can't get out of Adam. You just had to die. But now that it's dead, now that you are in Christ, now you can bear fruit for God. In verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Notice he didn't say it was the law that died. We're released from the law. The law that what? Said that as long as you were in that relationship, you couldn't do anything. The law just kept telling you you're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. Why? Because you're an Adam. Nothing you can do about it. Well, I didn't curse and I didn't commit adultery and I didn't murder anybody. But you're still a sinner because you're an Adam. You can't change that. Except how? To die. And so the death is what brought forth the liberty. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code, which is another phrase for the law. So this illustration and then a second explanation Paul is just simply saying what he's been saying since chapter 5 over and over all the way through chapter 6 and now again here in chapter 7. But what what he's bringing up here as he comes back to the law is something that we need to uh, be cognizant of. We're going to see in chapter 7 over 25 times Paul refers to the law in just this one chapter. So what do you think could be the subject of chapter 7? The law. And our struggle with it. And so this is the issue that we're going to face. And Paul is going to deal with that as he goes through the body of uh, chapter 7 starting actually in verse 7 all the way through the end of 25. Now, this, this issue with the law is something that's stated over and over and over because that's how Paul was showing people their, their, um, their need for a Savior. We've seen before, chapter 5, chapter 4, chapter 3, chapter 6, We've seen in all those chapters at least one place Paul talks about the fact that before the law came, we didn't know what sin was. doesn't mean we weren't in sin. It just means we didn't know what it was. I didn't know what laws I was breaking. But I was. And so the law came along to show people what was wrong. Now, God gave the law to who? The Jews. Not to all the world. The law was given to the Jews as using them for an illustration to the rest of the world what God would do to save us. It wasn't, he didn't give the law to the Jews so they could go out and make everybody Jews. That's not what it was for. It was to proclaim his name by them living in a way that honored God. And as long as they did that, then God's name was being proclaimed it was his fame was spreading because God was blessing his people who were following the things that he said and the rest of the world could look at that and say oh this is pretty incredible these people follow this this code and God blesses them and so people began coming to Judaism but they didn't have to come to the law to to be saved they were coming to a hope for a redeemer because the law didn't save anyone for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified so no matter how close you kept the law you still weren't saved 
unless you were believing in the Redeemer who was going to come to redeem you from that law. But as soon as the Jews stopped talking about the Redeemer and only talked about the law, then they lost the edge that God was using the law for. So when Jesus came, what did the Pharisees talk about? A Redeemer? Did they ever talk about the Messiah? No, all they talked about was the law. Do the law, 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 do the law. You're not doing it, you're not doing it, you're not doing it, you're not doing it, I'm doing it. You know, and so this was, this was their whole thing. But there was no message of a Redeemer. But there's a Redeemer going to come and rescue you from trying to keep the law. Because I can't. I can't. And no one could. So when they lost that message of Redeemer, then the law becomes the issue. And even since Jesus' death and resurrection that's been what's had the hold over the Jewish people as Paul traveled throughout the Roman Empire, as the other apostles traveled throughout the empire. Every place they went, they were running into these people and say, yeah, but you're not keeping the law. You're not keeping the law. These people can't come because they're not keeping the law. If they commit to keep the law, then we'll let them come in. Yeah, and maybe, maybe this Messiah thing is good for us. Maybe it's not. Who needs a Messiah if we're doing the law ourselves? Really? Who needs Jesus? So that's what Paul was facing in church after church after church. And so as he spread this message, he realized that this was a stronghold for the people. But the law had to come. The law had to come. And the law didn't come so that we could keep the law today. I got a chart I'm making up for you. I like some of these little charts that I've been seeing, and I'll make one up for next week, which will show you how each one of the Ten Commandments, I will give you scriptures where it says, if you break that commandment, you are worthy of death. The penalty for breaking this commandment is death. And each one of the ten there's at least one or two verses that say, you break this commandment, you're worthy of death. You mean just coveting? Yeah. And that's the thing that Paul's going to bring up. Paul doesn't, he's down here as he goes down through, he's not going to talk about murder, adultery, stealing. He's not going to talk about kidnapping. He's not going to talk about rebelling against parents. He's not going to talk about breaking the Sabbath day. He's going to talk about coveting. You know what coveting is? Wanting to do it. Wanting. I didn't steal it. I just wanted to. I didn't kill the person. I just wanted to. Didn't commit adultery. Just wanted to. The rich young ruler came to Jesus. What was, his, what was the one law that he could not... He said, I've kept all these from my youth, except for... Well, give all you... Give, have, take everything you have and give it to the poor. Uh, that money belongs to me. What is that? Coveting. Keeping that. Which actually, the law said, if you have things, to give to those who are poor. Anyway, so there's all kinds of things, and we'll get into those as we go down through this. But the law becomes the big issue over the next uh, rest of this chapter. Now, what we're going to face, starting in verse 7 all the way through into 25, is this contest, this struggle, or as one man said, the holy war. This, this issue, conflict. And the conflict was not just real before you got saved. It's real now that you have been saved. And he's going to show how this works still through our life. Uh, Romans chapter 7. Uh, let's look at verse, uh, it's down the bottom of your page. Romans 7, look at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. I didn't want to do it, but I did it because the law said it was so I had to do it. 
verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I'm only doing it because I have to. For I know that nothing good, verse 18, what did he say? I know that what? Nothing Nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Notice he didn't say nothing dwelt in me, as if this was all past tense. It's not, it's present tense. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul, really? How much more tongue twisting can you get than trying to read through that? This, this thing that's going on, this struggle, is what chapter 7 really is all about, from verse 7 all the way through 25. And he keeps going back over some of these issues, but he wants to make sure that we understand our relationship with the law before we were saved and our relationship with the law now that we are. And our relationship with the old nature and our relationship with the new nature. So these are things that we will talk about. All Paul can do finally as he comes down to the end of this passage in verse 24 is cry out for deliverance. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now that's not Paul pre-salvation. That's Paul right now. Present tense in his life. If, If that's if that's all I've got is a continual struggle in my life, ah! that's, that's my expression of wretched man that I am. <laughs> Who will deliver me? How, how am I going to get out of this? Well, I'm not going to give you the answer, but that's where we're, that's where we're going in chapter 8. Okay. Now, What I got on the next couple pages is um, a vocabulary. Yeah, we're going to study a vocabulary. Because these are words that either come up throughout chapter 7, chapter 8, and other parts of the book of Romans as we go. Other parts of Paul's letter to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, to the Colossians. And so we'll find in all of Paul's letters, and then even in we can go even to sometimes in Peter and John, how they bring up some of these phrases. So these are words that Paul uses. Some of them are synonymous. I mean, they mean the same thing. Others are absolute exclusive. They mean this and this alone. And it's the only word that means that. Some of them refer to the flesh. Some refer to our body. Some refer to the old nature the old man, the old self. Some refer to the new man, the new self. Some refer to a a body of death. They refer to our new creation. They refer to our carnal, spiritual, maturity, all these different things. So, here we go. The first set of of words that we're going to look at, on page two there, is the three-part being, which most Christians are familiar with the three-part being. They are what? Spirit, soul, and body, right? So we can look at those. I'm going to go backwards. I'm going to start with the body and work inward toward the spirit, right? So three-part being, body, soul, and spirit. What is the body? Well, in Paul's writing, the body can have several different ways that it's used. Mostly this Greek word, uh, sarks, by the way, is the word. And most of the time, the use of this word has to do with the physical being that you are. You know, you touch yourself, that's, that's the body. The, the part of you that relates to creation around you. Rather, you know, the chair that you're sitting on or the floor that you're walking on, uh, the car that you're driving, uh, whatever. 
So the body, the physical body in which we exist. The body is not me. The body is my, some people say, earth suit. It's what's made me capable of communicating with this creation that God gave us. All right? The thing about the body is, and we look at several different, there's other ways that Paul uses this, but this is, you know, within the spiritual context of it, is subject to the natural elements and influenced by them. So my body is subject to the things that are around it, good or bad, and uh, they can be tempting, they can be encouraging, but it's subject to the things that are around However, the body is under the control of something else. That is the soul and the spirit within. So your body has no control of itself. Take the soul and the spirit and it's just a corpse. There's nothing, you can't do anything. There's nothing there. And so the body has no control. Your body can't make you do something. There's another part of you that is in charge of that. Right? So the body responds, and it is with the body that quite a bit of our sin is committed. So the body is how we commit a lot of what the Bible calls sin. But it's just the body. It's not doing it itself. Something is, if I use any other term, empowering it. Something is manipulating it. Something is using the body to commit sin. So the second part of man, then is soul. And this is the seat of a person's reasoning and will. Uh, The soul is so vastly described and... Some theologians believe that the soul and the spirit are the same thing. They just haven't read the Bible enough. Um, They've got a lot of reading, but they haven't read the right verses. But um, the soul is the seed of a person's reasoning. But the most important thing within the soul is not the intellect or the emotions. It's the volition. It's the will. And we'll look at that as we go. So the parts of the soul, then, the the soul is, in a sense, three-part. Mind, emotions, and will. The mind being the intellect, uh, it's educated by experience. So your soul is educated by what you learn, what you're taught. And so, in a sense, when you're born, it's an empty container. It's like a hard drive that's got nothing on it. And so input right so you start putting things in and so it's educated it's educated by uh things around it it's experience it's educated by learning and the source it becomes a source of reasoning creativity imagination and fear fear springs forth from this soulish realm and the soul is fed by the five senses now the five senses are part of the body but they feed the soul right some some people have called them gates so it's like eye gate ear gate you know so so things come into the body touch smell taste all these things they they and since they feed what's inside so that your soul then collects all that that's coming in and makes decisions about it thinks about it creates things how many of you have weird dreams weird dreams i mean not so much there it's like no they're not that's not from god that's just stupid right it's just you know it's just weird it's it's, how in the world did i put that together but i did my my weirdest dreams they always involve being late i don't know why it always has to do with me being late it must be something within me um, but it's just, I, and I just hate it, and I'm trying to get there, and the more I try to get there, I'm not getting there anywhere, you know, and it's just, but but there's stupid things that happen in there, like 
being able to jump so high and pretty soon I'm flying, you know, and it's like, whoa, and then I'm afraid I'm going to fall, and I'm falling, and I don't know how to do to because I didn't get myself there by flying. I was like, I don't know what to do. Now I'm falling, and anyway. So I don't know, I don't know how I put that together, but that's that jumble that gets in there, and it's just stuff skipping around in your brain, and suddenly it comes out. Um, when I was in the hospital, you know, for... for to treating the Crohn's disease, and uh, they gave me this one sleeping pill thing to help me rest. Oh my gosh, I I had hallucination and delirium, and I had absolutely the worst dreams. And it was I could I could actually I was actually had my eyes partially open, and I'm trying to say stop dreaming, stop dreaming, and I couldn't stop dreaming, and I couldn't stop this stuff from coming, and it was horrible. But who put that in there? <laughs> I don't know, but anyway. But your your soul is the seat of all of that. And it gets all this information, and then it gives direction to your body. Sometimes to your mouth, sometimes to your hands, right? And so it, it gives those sources. And the soul is also our source of communication. It is out of the soul that we communicate. Based on what we've learned, what we know, we then can communicate. And we can communicate with humanity, but out of the soul we can also communicate with with God. And so out of the soul we can commune with God. So, that's the mind. Another part of the soul is the emotions. And these are the passions. And these are what we call feelings or whatever, and they drive us. Um, what fed the passions? Not necessarily anything. God created emotion. God created mankind with emotion. And it's not passion. Emotions aren't wrong. Um, there are, quote, movements, religious movements, who have decided that it is absolutely wrong to show any kind of emotion, that it is something that should not be done. Uh, to the to the place where there was uh, periods in uh, church history where preaching with any kind of emotion was basically forbidden, and so they would their preaching was monotone. Read the things. Um, I I recently, both a couple years ago, I was at a funeral, a Roman Catholic church, and. The, the preacher was reading psalms, and it was the most boring reading of psalms I've ever heard in my life. And I thought, it's, it's better than that. You know, so I asked a young man afterwards, I said, why? And I said, because they're taught in seminary that actually adding emotion to the reading is adding to the scriptures. So... When David was crying out for help, it was just a, help me, God. Is that what he said? You know, Jonah was in the whale, and it's just like, God, get me out of here. So anyway, I don't know. But emotion, passion is not wrong. It's just how they're directed. And then can the passions control you? Yes, but not without using your next one, will. Yeah, your passions can't control you without using your will. Now, I put those little statements down there under emotions. The emotions can be influenced by the mind. In other words, I've taught myself this, and because of the way I think or the way I've said or experienced I've had, this is my emotional response when I see those things. Uh, but also, emotions can hold power over the mind. My emotions can make me think certain things. And so, I, you know, I, my, my emotions can take over. And so those are there. But the most important and the one that actually involves all of these and brings them all together is the will. The will is the I will and I will not of your life. That's just the best way to say it. I will or I will not. And it is the thing that gives control. It gives over um, permission. It uh, sets goals. It determines what you want to do, what you don't want to do. What you'll allow, what you won't allow. 
And so the will is in authority over all these things. Um, the will uses the mind, it uses the emotions. Uh, and in those ways, then the will uses the body. So all of that gets involved. The, the, it's that which influences or allows control. Usually, usually the will is the path through which the mind and the emotions direct the body. Usually. Now there can be, like what we saw, you know, spontaneous reactions to certain things. In the sense, my will didn't really even get involved, but just happened. You know, so uh, those types of things do take place. But mostly, it is the will that allows the soul to use the body. Okay, so that's body, spirit, or body and soul. Now, the third part of the three-part three being is the spirit, not the Holy Spirit. So there is the spirit in man, and then there is the Holy Spirit. And I've tried, as we'll go through these different passages, I will try to designate when we come to the Holy Spirit where that is. So, uh, down toward bottom third of your uh, page two, the spirit. The spirit is the essence of what is human. It's hard, it's hard to describe or define the spirit of man because it's, it's, it just is. It's the essence that is there. That which God breathed into man. It is the breath of life that God breathed into man. So the Hebrew word ruach, which is the word for spirit or breath, wind. Um, so that is God breathed that into man. It makes man different than all other creation. No other animal, no plants, no minerals have spirit. And so uh, I know there are religions that designate spirit to uh, animals or whatever, uh, even to plants, but they don't um, that unless it's demonic. And demons can use inanimate things in other creatures. But the spirit is what makes man different. No other, God, God just spoke and animals came into being. Plants came into being. Birds, fish, all kinds of things. But with man, he molded him, created him, and then breathed life into him. And then one of the most beautiful things is on the day of the resurrection, Jesus gathered his disciples in the upper room. And he found himself in the middle, and it says, and he breathed out and into them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So it's like rebreathing, and that was rebreathing in the new life that God has given. So our spirit man, since our new birth, has been breathed into by God. Um, it is the thing that sets us apart. It is the center of our person. Uh, it, it's made to be in connection or communion with God. But the spirit uses the soul. Your spirit, you commune with God through your prayers, don't you? But your prayers have to go through your brain to your mouth and out, right? And your lungs get involved because you have to breathe. And so all those things happen. Now, praying the spirit is something different, but I'm not talking about that right at the moment. And so it is the part of us that allows communication. It is the part that wants to be in communion with God. It's created to be that way. But when Adam fell, that was separated. That's what spiritual death is. Okay, to be spiritually dead means to be disconnected, separated from God. That's what happened when Adam fell. He lost the connection with God and thereby... Everyone born from Adam had no connection with God. And so all of those uh, issues were there. And by, by not being in connection with God, then the only connection he could have was with creation. And so man began to worship creation and began to give himself over to creation. He could commune with the devil, uh, commune with Satan, and Satan could influence, but... He could not commune with God without determined effort. Now, Abel talked with God, communed with God, 
Noah communed with God. We know different ones did commune with God. They didn't have, they didn't, their spirit wasn't alive, but they were communing with God through how? Through their soul. And making that effort, directing themselves to this God who was their redeemer. Job talked about communing with God. And so there was a way. Uh, Elihu, even speaking to Job, said there is a spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty. Now, it was born again, but it was a spirit by which he could, if he gave effort, make communion with God. However, before our new birth, that spirit man was severed from relationship with God and totally under the influence, the authority, the power, the control of the natural world. Okay, so that's the three-part being. All right, now there's a lot more I could write on these. I could spend the entire time just on those three things, but i got to move on. So there's the three-part being. But man is also, in some places, referred to as a two-part being. The inner man and the outer man. And so Paul talks about the outer man. The outer man is a combination of soul, spirit, body. Soul and body, mostly. So the outer man is a condition where the unrenewed soul is in control of the body and its members. So the outer man is your soul directing what you're doing, what you're thinking, what you're wanting. So this outer man that is not supposed to be in control. Unbelievers, that's all they got. They only have the outer man. They don't have an inner man because there's no spirit alive on the inside of them that is in communion with God. And so this is the outer man. It is uh, the recreated spirit is dominated by the soul and the body. This can happen to believers. Believers, their outer man can dominate their life. They're also called, as we'll come down to this later, they're also called carnal or to be carnally minded. So that is a believer who is allowing the old nature to be in control. But the old nature doesn't have power, so it's only in control because you gave it power. All right? You yielded power to it. Top of page three is the inner man. And so the inner man then is the other part of the two-part being. The inner man is a condition where the recreated spirit is in control of the soul and thereby the body. So the inner man and the outer man. So Paul talks about the inner man. And he wants to use that as an illustration of that which is on the inside of you, the spirit which is in communion with God, then through your soul... And your body serving God. So, we are three-part being, right? We're also two-part being. We want to be people controlled by the inner man, the spirit, or the inner man, right? So we want to be those who are controlled by either the spirit or by the inner man. Now, moving on down. The next thing, the flesh. What is the flesh? Well, it's this friend of ours uh, graduated in our school a number of years ago uh, from Germany, and um, he's a pastor there. Um, so he took some of Pastor Bob's books and translated them into German. And he took One Flesh, a book on marriage. And it's like, by, you know, the German people, they need this book. <laughs> they, they need to be taught on marriage. However, he had to change the title. Because in German, one flesh becomes one piece of meat. <laughs> and that doesn't really go over well. It's like, no, that's, let's use a different title. So he, he had to come up with a different title. So the flesh is just this. It's this. It's, but it's more than just the body. So the flesh isn't just the body, though it can be. My body is made up of flesh. 
right? Flesh and blood, Jesus used that phrase. But normally when this, the idea of flesh is brought out, it is the natural being as relating to our creation. So it is this part of me that relates to creation. Um, it's our former life dominated by the old life. So when Paul talks about the flesh, he's talking about your old self when it was being dominated by the things of creation, by the influences and the, the desires and the passions of those things, our old self using the soul and the body to live without regard to God's purpose and his law. That's the flesh. Doing what you want to do, living how you want to live. So when you talk about they were living in the flesh, that's what it's talking about. They're living out their own ways without regard to God's purposes and his laws. And then finally, the flesh is a part of a new believer, right? So we still have flesh, but it's the part of the new believer which has not yet been submitted to God's intent and purpose as taught or revealed by the Holy Spirit within and his word without. So to a believer, the flesh is that part of me that is still not yet fully submitted to the righteous plans and purposes of God. The Holy Spirit within and the word of God on, without. And so as a believer, I need to sub do my flesh, I need to commit my flesh, I need to take control of my flesh and not let it dominate my life, but instead draw from the help of the Holy Spirit, which is chapter 8, draw from the help of the Holy Spirit to live in a way that is in accordance with God's righteousness and his purposes and his plans. So that's, that's the flesh. Now, I myself... This is the I, this is the me, this is the you. This is the one that's in charge. I, me, and you. It's more than just the will. It's not just the soul. It's the decisions that are being made. The one who is in charge. The one who's in charge. So Paul says, I did this, or um, me. This is, this is me, or you. You do this. So there's a person inside. Um, some people refer to, you know, it's like it's the hand that's inside the glove. It's the hand that's manipulating the glove. It's more than the conscience. It's, it's you. And we'll, we'll see this in um, a verse here in just a minute. I'm going to skip over some of the rest of this and go to one verse to uh, end our session today. So the, the I, the me, the you... It's either under the influence of our human spirit by the Holy Spirit or it's under the influence of the flesh as yielding power to the old self. So I can follow the things of God or I can follow the things of the flesh. Did you see that? So all of it is I. It's, it's I can do this. It is that part that is is either under the influence of the human spirit led by the Holy Spirit or of the flesh yielding to the old self. There is no middle ground. There's not spirit, flesh, middle. No, it's one or the other. There's no middle ground. The choice is fully my decision. So I want you to turn to page 4, and uh, go down to a verse that is very familiar. It's right about the middle of your page. It says, this struggle is real and referenced often in the New Testament letters, and I've got a bunch of these. We'll talk about the rest of these next week. But Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, very familiar passage. But this I say, walk by the Spirit. Now, when Paul says walk we all know enough grammar that the subject is the implied what? You, right? You is implied. That's why I put it in there. I say you walk by the Spirit. So there is a you that is determining to walk by the Spirit, right? It's not just, hey, you know what? You're going to walk by the Spirit. No, you have to make the determination. So 
there's a you that is involved in making this choice. You walk by the Spirit, and you, who walk by the Spirit, will not gratify or fulfill the desires of the flesh. So, so the, the intention that you have to follow the things of the Spirit will cause it to be something that you will not fulfill the flesh. What's the swap around? If you don't walk by the Spirit, you will end up toward gratifying the flesh. So, And he says that basically in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Now, the word against in the Greek language is a strong word which means to be set against one another. They are eternal enemies, the flesh and the spirit. Now, I need to enlarge on this, and we will do more of this as we uh, progress into chapter 8, but uh, when Paul says the spirit, he's not just referring to the Holy Spirit. It's not just the Holy Spirit against the flesh. It's the Holy Spirit in your spirit, right? So it should really be your spirit as led by the Holy Spirit. Dr. Kenneth Hagin, uh, he was one who would constantly use that phrase, your spirit by the Holy Spirit. And so there's, there's the Spirit of God dwells in me, dwells in you. Is that right? Yes. And he dwells where? In your spirit. So as my spirit yields to the Holy Spirit, then I will war against the flesh. But the flesh will war against my spirit. He's, yeah, he's opposed to the Holy Spirit, but he's really in, against me and you. All right? And so he says they're, they're against each other. The flesh against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. Notice that there's no middle ground. Well, but I'm not, you know, I'm not flesh and I'm not spirit. I'm kind of flirt, flirt, flesh. What you know? I want to be that. I want to be that middle, middle thing. I'm not. I don't want to go whole hog spirit. You know, people think you're crazy with religion. I don't want to be in the flesh. I just kind of walk a middle. No, there is no middle ground. Either you're walking by the spirit, or you're gratifying the flesh. That's just it. And it says these are opposed to each other. The Greek phrase opposed to each other uh, is a word which means to be in battle array. They are set in battle against one another. And your spirit man is saying, I'm not giving in. I'm not giving in. I want to dominate you. The Holy Spirit, by your spirit, wants to dominate your life. But he won't do it without you. You have to make the choice. You have to yield to that. You have to give to that. You have to desire to do those things. Your flesh wants the same thing. But remember, your flesh doesn't have any power. Power has been taken away. So if the flesh is dominating you, that's because you gave it permission. That's not comfortable. All right, so these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Notice how often the word you comes up in there. You keep you from doing what you want to do. The you is there. But either the you is going to go with the spirit or it's going to go with the flesh. And that is where they are. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, so if I listen to the Spirit on the inside, if I give myself over to the Holy Spirit, living in my human spirit, <clears throat> if I listen to that, follow that, follow what is written in His Word, then I will, what? Fulfill the things that God wants me to do. And I will not be under the law. How... How did that get me out from under the law? What does that got to do with being under the law? The law 
tries to rule your flesh, but without God. I'm not under the law. I'm not doing this because I have to. I'm not doing it from an outside form. That's the law. So I'm not, I'm no longer under the law. The law had to do with my old nature. Before I had the life of God in me, I needed the law. But now I don't because I'm married to another. I do not need that old nature ruling my life. So this passage and many others, and we'll talk about those in coming lesson. All right, so there's our vocabulary study. There will be a test next week.